Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is WBEZ's Weekly News Recap. Each week, we catch you up on the biggest local and state stories that you might have missed. Stories like these. J.B. Pritzker is laying out his plan to spend $45.4 billion in 2023. Three years ahead of the Chicago Teachers Union, Jesse Sharkey says he is moving on. Sharkey announcing he will not seek re-election this June. Chicago Blackhawks owner Rocky Wirtz is apologizing for remarks he made last night regarding the sexual assault scandal involving a former assistant coach. We're not going to talk about Kyle Beach. We're not going to talk about anything that happened. Now we're moving on. What more do I have to say? Jason Van Dyke tonight has been a free man for almost 24 hours. There is mounting pressure from both civil rights and elected leaders to explore federal charges. There's so much news to get into, and I cannot do it on my own. So here to help dive into the stories of the week are WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKinney and Alex Nitkin, City Hall reporter at The Daily Line. We're going to hear from Dave in a moment, but Alex, let's turn to you first for one of the biggest stories that we were watching this week. And that's the release of former Chicago police officer Jason Van Dyke. Dozens of people gathered downtown last night to protest Van Dyke's early release from prison yesterday. He ended up serving a little over three years for the killing of teen Laquan McDonald. What happened at last night's protest, Alex? Right. Well, I mean, this is something that we expected that would happen. A lot of people coming out and just expressing outrage that this is someone who is, you know, convicted murderer, was uh, charged and convicted on 16 counts of aggravated battery for shooting Laquan McDonald 16 times. In addition to second degree murder, there was a huge protest downtown. Some people were arrested. Really, this does come down to that initial sentence, and it was an 81-month sentence that Van Dyke got for those charges from Judge Vincent Gone at the time. That's a little under seven years. And we heard all kinds of, you know, leaders also expressing some some outrage and sort of befuddlement about this. Again, we heard state's attorney Kim Fox saying, you know, that just doesn't add up for 16 counts of aggravated battery and second-degree murder. So we have seen, in addition to that kind of organizing, NAAC President Derek Johnson and also Senators, Illinois Senators Dick Durbin and Tammy Duckworth wrote to Attorney General Merrick Garland basically saying, you know, are there federal charges that we can explore? Is there some way that we can add some more justice into this equation? So how did Van Dyke get out so early? That's a good point also. So he was only to 81 months, a little under seven years. And now it's been, like you said, just under or a little over three years since Mm -hmm. he was sentenced at the end of 2018. And that was just parole for, you know, good behavior in prison. Good time credit, according to Illinois law. And activists want to see new federal civil rights charges filed against him. How likely is that to happen, Alex? It seems like an uphill battle for sure. Basically, the requests that a lot of activists are making are for new federal charges alleging that he violated so-called deprivation of rights under color of law. Basically, they would have to show that Van Dyke willfully broke the law. This is something that is above and beyond you know, the violent charges that he was convicted for. It's something that has been very difficult to make stick traditionally around the country, you know, particularly against police officers. But it, it seems like a, a Hail Mary that is, is just sort of worth throwing at this point, too, as far as activist organizers are concerned, to make the scales balance out to be a little more appropriate in a case like this. 
Turning to you now, Dave, and talking about Springfield, Governor Pritzker unveiled his more than $45 billion budget plan in Wednesday's State of the State address. What were the highlights of the speech? Illinois is sort of famous or infamous is probably the better word for how screwed up its finances have been over over decades, really. And what we saw this year was really kind of a turnabout. The spending plan that Pritzker put on the table includes increases pretty much across the board for schools, for, for colleges and universities, for human services, Medicaid. It was a real uncharacteristic kind of spending plan that we've seen here where there's just a lot of increases, and it seems like a situation where it's basically being supported by surging sales tax and, and income tax revenues. So it's a big package coming out of Springfield here, it looks like. Mm. Well, the, the budget also includes nearly a billion dollars in, in temporary tax relief. Walk us through what exactly he's proposing. Well, this is probably the thing that grabbed the most attention. You know, we are, after all, in a re-election year uh, for, for Governor Pritzker. There are five Republicans out there that are circling around trying to figure out which one is going to take him on. And so, you know, the idea that here you have a spending plan that's got, you know, really nearly a billion dollars worth of, of tax relief in it, it's a bit surprising because we don't see that that often. But what it lays out is that there's supposed to, there's a 1% tax on groceries that'll be suspended for a year. You know, if you got a $200 weekly grocery bill, that's two bucks uh, per week, roughly, if you go that often. Mm-hmm. There's a, a an increase in gasoline that's supposed to kick in in July as well. I think it's about 2.3 cents per gallon. Again, you, you save a few dollars at the pump there for a year under that plan. Okay. And then there's a, a property tax component to this that deals with about 2 million homeowners getting property tax rebate checks of up to $300 before the election. So those are the, the highlights of that tax relief piece. Well, let's listen to a bit from Pritzker's address this week. Look, the actual work of managing Illinois' state finances is decidedly unglamorous. It's not partisan work. It's not political work. It's just hard work. Dave, where exactly is Pritzker finding the money in the budget for for these tax suspensions and credits? The revenue increases we've seen in uh, sales taxes and income taxes. People are just spending more and they're making more. And that's enabled the the Treasury to kind of suddenly get a black balance instead of a red one. They estimate at the end of this current fiscal year, by the end of June, that there's going to be a $1.7 billion surplus because of those uh, increases. And so that's really the, the money from which a lot of this spending that Pritzker's proposing is going to be covered from. How did legislators respond to the governor's budget plan and tax proposals? Well, I mean, Democrats, predictably, were were pretty much all on board. I mean, they're in a fast-track legislative calendar this year. I mean, they're supposed to conclude their work in Springfield in early April. So I expect that Democrats are going to rush this through so they can hit the campaign trails themselves. Republicans, of course, were trying to poke holes in it. Several of them thought that there were election year, what they called campaign gimmicks, thrown in. And I think that was an allusion to the the tax relief pieces of this, because I think that Republicans want to hit Pritzker for his support two years ago of trying to change the income tax structure in Illinois to make it a graduated income tax instead of a flat tax. And so this tax relief now that he's proposing kind of helps rebut that a little bit. So Republicans against it, Democrats for it, and Democrats are the ones that hold all the cards. Sticking with you for another moment here, Dave, uh, Pritzker also addressed crime during his speech. What did he propose? Well, that's another spot that Republicans are trying to go at him in this election year, because 
Uh, all you have to do is look at data in Chicago, for example. I mean, last year we, we saw the most amount of homicides, I think, in, in almost 25 years. And so if you live in any city neighborhood, you're also accustomed to uh, having to look over your shoulder to make sure you're not going to get carjacked. And, and so Republicans have seized on that. And in his speech, Pritzker, he basically, I think he stressed very hard that he's not for defunding police, which has been a, a rap against Democrats across the country. He, he used language like that. You can't defund government in times like this. And then he went about sort of highlighting the fact that under his watch, the state police have begun bouncing back in terms of headcount from where they were under Bruce Rauner. They're going to be hiring about 300 new police officers uh, out of their cadet class this year. And he's talked about crime labs that they've put money into to help open up and create. So, I mean, he's trying to do what he can to rebut that. Of course, he controls the state police. He controls, I think, the Department of Conservation Police, but he doesn't control the city police, you know, across the state. And that's really where the battle and crime is fought. Switching gears, Alex, Chicago Teachers Union President Jesse Sharkey says that he's not going to run for re-election. What were the reasons that he gave for stepping down? Basically, he said that it was mostly personal reasons, that this is just not a position that he was going to be in forever. Jesse Sharkey was a former social studies teacher at Sen High School up in Edgewater, where he presumably is going to go back to. Remember, he really came to prominence in 2010 as part of this really new kind of aggressive militant wing of the Chicago Teachers Union, along with Karen Lewis. Uh, Sharkey was really Lewis's right hand and vice president through the 2011 teacher strike and and up through all those actions until Lewis stepped down in 2018. And Sharkey has been chief foil to Mayor Lori Lightfoot since then, first in that weeks-long 2019 Chicago Teachers Union, uh, you know, teachers strike. And then, of course, with all of the, the labor actions having to do with COVID safety protocols. So the sort of assumption here is that current CTU Vice President Stacey Davis-Gates is going to, to step into that breach and, and run in CTU elections a little bit later this year in his stead on that, that ticket from that caucus. It's going to be interesting because they are going to be up against this Members First Caucus, which is the sort of alternative faction within the CTU that it has been critical of some of the, the hardline stances that Sharkey and uh, Davis Gates have taken in the name of teachers and COVID safety and all of that. They blame them for the school shutdown that we saw a couple weeks ago. And so that is going to be the next political fight we're going to be watching within CTU. Wow. There's another group challenging the current leadership. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's called the Members First Caucus. This is a group that has run in the past. They have not had a lot of success before. Really, the Karen Lewis, Jesse Sharkey, Stacey Davis-Gates faction has has really been dominant. But the, the Members First Caucus is saying, you know, looking back at the past couple weeks, months, all of the, the, the chaos, the confusion, they, they're sort of making a play that they can do a better job and get more results for teachers. Dave, uh, Blackhawks owner Rocky Wirtz came under a lot of criticism for, for some comments that he made. What happened? Well, I mean, this is a, a, another offshoot of this situation that the Blackhawks found themselves in over the la- last year, really. You know, the scandal involving the former assistant coach that is alleged to have sexually abused a former player who has come forward named Kyle Beach back in 2010. And then there were other allegations after uh, this coach left the Blackhawks of you know, similar complaints arising, you know, in different places that this coach went. And there were lawsuits that had been uh, thrown into the hopper against the uh, Blackhawks from Beach and others. And they had just recently, in the last month or so, a couple of months, they had settled 
with Beach, and it looked as if they had at least made some you know progress in getting this situation behind them because you know they had to pay a two million dollar fine to the league, the the front office. There, were, there was a huge shakeup that resulted from it, and so they were they had taken all these steps to kind of hopefully make right with those who had been uh, hurt by this former coach and regain their reputations in a way. Well, this situation that you mentioned with Wurtz happened during a town hall with fans, and it happened to be the first time that Wurtz had come out in public to answer questions since the settlement was announced. And the questions from a couple of reporters were very, very simple. And they were, what is the team prepared to do moving forward to make sure that the power imbalances that led to you know, the coach being in a position to sexually abuse a player, what's being done to ensure that never happens again? A pretty good question. Yeah. And instead of reverting back to some of the talking points they had out in play when the settlement was announced, Wartz became enraged at the question, and he, he tried to shut it down. Uh, he really kind of gave the reporters a scolding for that. Let's hear yeah. a bit of the exchange, sure. Dave. I think the report speaks for itself. The people that were involved are no longer here. We're not looking back at 2010. We're looking forward, and we're not going to talk about 2010. I can pick up to what we are doing today, and I think No, that's... I don't know. That's none of your business. No, I don't... I, I answered it, and I told you to get off the subject. You didn't I'm not gonna, you We're not going to bring up the report. Yikes. He's since apologized for that outburst, right, Dave? He has. They put a statement to try to clean that up, but as you can tell, I mean, it was a, it was a disaster. It was a public relations disaster and a, a complete self-inflicted wound by the owner of the team here. And, and so, I, you know, it's, it's very unclear moving forward you know, how they intend to, to kind of clean this up. They've been transitioning to another generation of the Wurtzes and whether that will accelerate now as a result of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that remains to be seen. But that, you know, there's a lot of pressure still on Rocky Wurtz about uh, his handling of all of this. That's WBEZ state politics reporter Dave McKinney. Also with us is Alex Nitkin, City Hall reporter for The Daily Line. Don't go away. There's plenty more where that came from, including these stories. Tracking the totals of snow just continuing to go up. You know that uh, streets have not been cleared, especially when you see dibs. You know that that's exactly what's going on. Police were once again in West Rogers Park this morning investigating what may be another act of hate against the neighborhood's Jewish community. This is our home and place. There is no room for hate. With COVID cases dropping dramatically, Chicago's top doctor says Chicago mask and vaccine mandates could soon be lifted. Tonight, stealth Omicron has arrived in Illinois. The new coronavirus strain showing up here for the first time. So back to you, Dave. It was just a few weeks ago that COVID cases were out of control in Illinois, but we're slowly starting to hear some good news. What's the latest? Well, I mean, as you heard in the lead in there, I mean, cases and hospitalizations and deaths in Chicago are all down by more than 40 percent since last week. And and it seems like, you know, the worst with this uh, Omicron surge is behind us. I think that probably means that we're going to see a lot of things starting to relax here now as a result of that. What does this new data mean for the possibility of the vaccine mandate being removed for for bars and, and restaurants? I think that's exactly it. You know, we're kind of in this mode now where we might be able to, for a change, go into a restaurant, go into a bar without, you know, having to, to bring the mask out. It's still sort of hard to kind of get your arms around, though, the idea that things are truly going to be better because these, uh, you know, the, the ability to predict what this uh, pandemic is going to do has just been so difficult. And I hope the predictions here are right, that we're, we're entering this new you know, spring and summer, hopefully, where, where things are a lot better. 
If I can just interject on that also, I think it's pretty notable. We heard Dr. Allison Arwady, the commissioner of the Chicago Department of Public Health, basically saying if things keep going on this trajectory, we're probably going to see that business vaccine mandate lift pretty soon. We don't know how pretty soon is, but hopefully, you know, maybe within the next couple of weeks, we could even say. Yeah. Well, you know, before we get ahead of ourselves, should we mention that the, the first case of a new Omicron subvariant was detected in Illinois this week? What do we know, Dave? Well, yeah, I mean, it's starting to pop up all over the place. I mean, you know, there are Denmark, I think, uh, across the ocean has, has been dealing with it, and other countries have. And I think there's still a lot of confusion about whether this is a more transmissible or a more dangerous strain of this. I think there is concern, certainly, about, you know, will this cause the, the downward trend we're seeing to level off and perhaps linger on for a period of time? I think these are the questions that, that make, you know, kind of the long-range forecasting so difficult for all the epidemiologists and all our public health people. Let's take a look at city politics now, Alex. Uh, Chicago's interim inspector general, that's the city's watchdog, uh, issued a new report this week. What did it say? Yeah, you know, it was interesting because it didn't actually really unearth a lot of new findings like a lot of the watchdog investigations do, but rather it was an advisory, this sort of like greatest hits that Marbeck put together of the Inspector General's office reports and findings from the last two or three years across a whole range of topics and departments, but basically coming to the same conclusion, which is that the city does not do a good enough job managing, sharing, and publishing data. And this is on a whole range of things from the Chicago Fire Department keeping data on ambulance response times to the Department of Streets and Sanitation trying to track overgrown lead citations on vacant lots. Probably the highest profile example is the police department's gang database, which the inspector general's office has consistently found has these massive data integrity issues with, you know, potentially harmful and racist consequences with who's getting arrested. So essentially, this was an advisory from the IG's office to uh, Chicago Chief Data Officer Nick Lucius saying, basically, figure this out, get your house in order, had a couple of recommendations. Interestingly, we did see a response from Lucius basically saying, we're on it, believe us, we know this is an issue. He talked about this really you know, exciting series of initiatives. He said, we're, quote, engaging in an aggressive 12-month plan to improve you know, IT and data management. It's going to launch an IT transformation office it's called, and it's all going to be nested within this grand plan that the city's Assets Information and Services Department has developed to basically spend $400 million in the next 10 years totally overhauling the city's IT infrastructure, everything from software to the way that data systems are communicating and how people are hiring. So this is definitely something that we're going to be following super closely in the coming you know, months and years. And the struggle over redrawing Chicago's ward map that continues, right, Alex? Remind us why the city council is redrawing the map. It continues. This is something that the city council and really all legislative bodies have to do every 10 years after the new census when we learn what you know where people are living. Basically, new boundaries have to be redrawn accordingly. We saw there was this whole messy battle with congressional boundaries and state legislative boundaries and you know Cook County boundaries. Those are all settled. But the city still needs to figure out its ward boundaries. And basically, there are two factions that are out there. There's what's called the City Rules Committee map, which is um, comprising the city's Black Caucus and most white aldermen. And then there's the so-called coalition map from the city council's Latino caucus. And basically, right now, the city council is deadlocked, 35 to 15. And it will take 41 of them, at least, to come together to agree on some compromise, some version of a new map. Otherwise, we are going to go to a voter referendum on June 28th in the primary to choose between the two. So... 
those are the stakes. You know, everyone is saying they want to avoid a referendum, but, you know, there was a, a meeting, special meeting held last Sunday where they were saying maybe they're going to shift the focus to some particular hotspots around the city, but we really just haven't seen much movement in, in weeks, really. So what are the chances that the city council can't come to an agreement on the map, Alex, and it instead goes to the voters on a citywide rec- referendum? I mean, far be it for me to predict, but I think the chances are, are good. You know, I talk to a lot of people who think the way that things are looking, I just can't see how this doesn't go to a referendum at this point. I mean, right now, the debate is focused not even on the merits and, and the boundaries themselves, but, you know, how we meet. Do we meet in person or do we meet in private? Because this has become in some ways very personal and sort of relationships have been damaged that the the discussion is even how to even do this. Mm-hmm. So the really important next date to look at is I think it's May 19th, 40 days before that June primary. That is the absolute deadline for 41 aldermen to come together to agree on a compromise. And if not, it's going to be put to voters. Sticking with you, Alex, in other city council news, Pilsen Alderman Byron Sigjo Lopez, he drafted a resolution supporting Starbucks workers in their effort to unionize. Here's a little bit of him speaking at the press conference in Chicago earlier this week. We are showing solidarity. We're showing our strength as working class people. And that's what we want to ask everybody in the city council here in Chicago to also follow suit of what Kishama is doing in Seattle, presenting a resolution of true support for the Star Wars workers who are fighting to be unionized and have a host at the table. What's brewing there? Yeah, so this all goes back to, of course, a couple months ago. A lot of people will remember that there was a historic vote by a Buffalo, New York Starbucks to, to unionize. And it took a big step forward this past week when 54 Starbucks locations in 19 states around the country, including two in Chicago, uh, one in the Loop and, and one in Logan Square, where that rally was, where we heard Alderman uh, Cicho Lopez speaking, announced an intent to to organize, to try to hold elections on whether they want to form unions. And Byron C. Lopez, you know, he's a member of the Democratic Socialist Caucus. He's just sort of the kind of guy who will show up at picket lines around the, the, the city and sort of show solidarity. We saw this, the El Milagro strike and, uh, you know, Nabisco. And what's interesting about this, forming this kind of three-pronged effort, joining with you know, like-minded sort of leftist leaders in Minneapolis and Seattle, and they're all going to file resolutions in their respective city councils, what they're calling the Solidarity Ordinance, calling on their cities to officially pressure Starbucks to allow their workforces to discuss unionization, to to not do any sort of intimidation tactics or anti-union propaganda, Mm -hmm. as he calls it. And so, you know, the resolution hasn't been filed yet. And so it's it's really no telling whether it'll go anywhere within this city council, but there's certainly political momentum building behind this nationwide effort. And Dave, in other political news, Illinois Representative Adam Kinzinger, he made national headlines this week urging Democrats and independents to join him in a, quote, uneasy alliance. What's he talking about? Way for uh, Republican primaries to elect people other than just true Trump loyalists. I mean, he's encouraging Democrats and independents to basically pull Republican ballots in primaries across the country and go in and vote for the more moderate anti-Trump Republicans, because they are, you know, as we've seen across the country, they're kind of a dying breed right now. I mean, their their numbers are shrinking. And, and as a result, these moderate Republican voices like Kinzinger's are, are disappearing from our political landscape. Well, Representative Kinzinger, he continues to deal with criticism from his own party over his uh, his stance on Donald Trump, right? And January 6th. What is going on today with the um, Republican National Committee? 
Well, I think while we've been on the air here, I think the RNC voted to censure both Kinzinger and the Wyoming Congresswoman uh, Liz Cheney, the Republican, because they were participating in the House committee that's investigating the January 6th insurrection from last year. The, the RNC and the language here, they, they basically characterized the attack on the Capitol as legitimate political discourse and said that basically the work that Cheney and Kinzinger were part of was an attack on, on citizens who were you know, just basically out doing their thing. And again, that phrase, legitimate political discourse. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I think it's mainly a symbolic kind of thing. I, you know, Kinzinger's not on the ballot. It's not going to hurt him in any way. Cheney, it might, uh, you know, she's, she's trying to you know, hold on to her seat, but they, they took a slap at him. All right. Well, on to a very different topic, Alex. Hate crime charges were filed against a suburban man who was allegedly behind anti-Semitic vandalism in Chicago's far north side neighborhood of West Ridge, just west of uh, Rogers Park. What do we know? It's a pretty frightening situation. This is West Rogers Park, West Ridge, where there's a a pretty concentrated Orthodox Jewish population. And a 39-year-old man from Niles was charged with four counts of felony hate crime and criminal damage and defacement. And he's been tied to a a series of different, you know, basically just vandalism and and spray painting on some businesses on Devon Avenue there, two synagogues, a yeshiva, a Jewish school were defaced with swastikas. Clearly, you know, really frightening stuff. And city leaders have been trying to show publicly that they're taking it very, very seriously. You know, we saw a press conference with Chicago Police Superintendent David Brown announcing these charges and and basically saying, you know, there is no place for this kind of hate crime in the city of Chicago. This comes right after this also really scary hostage situation that we saw in in Colleyville, Texas at a synagogue and just a couple days after, you know, Yom HaShoah, the Jewish Day of Holocaust Remembrance. So it's it's really front of mind for Jewish Chicagoans. And, you know, hopefully this is the last we we hear of, of that. Another story here, you know, with some areas of Chicago getting up to a foot of snow, you probably saw some streets filled with lawn furniture and broken chairs and buckets, pretty much anything that people didn't mind losing. That was being used to protect shoveled parking spaces what Chicagoans like to call dibs. But there's one alderman who decided that it was time to end that tradition. Alex, what happened in Alderman Ray Lopez's southwest side ward? Yeah, you know, it's the eternal argument, right? It comes back every single winter. Do you dibs? Do you not dibs? Alderman Raymond Lopez is someone who is both very outspoken on a whole range of issues and also pretty aggressive on on constituent services, plows and things like that. And I think we saw those two come together when he basically social media blitz saying, if you put any dibs out, we will confiscate them. We will throw them away. I think what he tweeted was, quote, now is your chance to take back your lawn furniture, baby strollers and buckets before I can sign them to their final resting place. Um, So I think that he's having a little bit of fun with it, but also is very clearly, like a lot of us, really fed up with people, you know, trying to reserve spots that are this is the public way. You know, no one owns uh, a piece of the street. And so he's just sort of taking it into his own hands. But yeah, like you said, Sasha, anyone who, you know, anything that you you put out there, bottom line, you should expect that you might lose it. Expect that you might lose it. Dave, what do you think? How long should you be able to reserve a parking spot that you shoveled? Well, I've always been in the mind, if I have to, you know, go into my car and drive to the grocery store to get a gallon of milk and a carton of eggs, it should basically be open for however long that trip is. So so it, it could vary depending on what, how long I need to be at the grocery store. <laughs> That's sort of how long I think it should stay open. Well, relatedly, we did have some good news this week. While most of us were scraping ice and snow off of our cars and our sidewalks, the city's Department of Cultural Affairs let us know that summer's a go. 
What do we have to look forward to, Dave? Yeah, I mean, you've got to remember here that we got, what, three or four months and, and we're back in warm weather again. I mean, the, the city's announced Jazz Fest, Blues Fest, and the full Chicago Air and Water Show. They're all going to be confirmed. So, I mean, yet another sign that we're all kind of getting a little more comfortable coming out of the pandemic shells that we've been in. Crossing our fingers that this plan still stands when summer is actually here, Dave. Yeah, right. <laughs> As we wrap up another news recap, what stories are you both going to be following in the coming days? You first, Alex. You know, we're going to be continuing to just glue ourselves to the remap to see who blinks first, if any conversations are happening, just looking at the city council. And we'll also want to take this opportunity to plug the next episode of our, our podcast. The Cloudcast is going to be an interview with my colleague, Aaron Hegarty, with Silvana Tavares, the vice chair of the Latino caucus, who's going to be talking all about that. Dave? You know, in Springfield, we'll start cranking up their budgets and everything else that they want to get done before April, and, and certainly the campaign trail. The Republican gubernatorial primary is starting to get interesting. So uh, those are two things I'll be keeping my eye on. That's it for the weekly news recap. Whether it's state or city politics, COVID updates, or remote schooling in our area, remember you can depend on us to give you the latest news to help keep you informed. So make sure you hit the subscribe button for this podcast. Then take a few seconds to give us a rating and a review. Doing that helps other folks like you find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. We'll be right back here Monday with a new episode. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.